BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on the site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. It's quite possible, my guest today recently wrote, that the U.S. government has imposed sanctions on the world's most socially responsible company and one that has been particularly beneficial to the Uyghurs. The company in question is Esquel, the world's largest manufacturer of woven shirts, which found its Xinjiang-based subsidiary, Changzi Esquel Textile Company Limited, on a U.S. entity list a little over a year ago. At the time, it strongly denied that it was using forced labor, Uyghur or otherwise, in its supply chain. The potential damage to the company went beyond the loss of its biggest export market, the U.S. It also suffered immediate reputational damage, as an excellent piece by Katrina Northrup in The Wire reported. That piece is titled Hemmed In, and while Esquel declined to be interviewed for it, it is nonetheless a terrific story that focuses on the remarkable woman who heads the company, Marjorie Yang. Uh, she's an MIT-educated, self-described math nerd who left Wall Street uh, to take the reins of her father's textile company and built it into a real behemoth, uh, largely on the strength of, of operations in Xinjiang. I highly recommend that you read the piece, uh, or since it's paywalled, listen to the audio version of it read by yours truly on our China Stories podcast. Uh, just search for Hemmed In on your podcast app, under China Stories, and you will find it. In any case, happily for the company, Esquel managed to have its subsidiary Changji removed from the entity list last month after it sued the Department of Commerce. Uh, many other companies, though, remain on the list, and concerns over forced labor are obviously not to be dismissed so lightly. But as USCBC, uh, US China Business Council President Craig Allen talked about recently on our sister podcast, China Corner Office, it's left many American importers with the vexing, if not indeed impossible task of proving a negative about their very complex supply chains if they want to get shipments out of limbo. So today, I want to focus on Esquel, on the fascinating woman who heads that company, and the dilemma that many other textile companies in China and a lot of importers here in the United States have faced as the U.S. government has moved to sanction companies, it suspects, of having supply chains that are tainted with forced Uyghur labor. I'm delighted to be joined this week by William Overholt. 
Bill is one of the true greats in the field. He has spent the last dozen or so years at Harvard, where he's now a senior research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also been at the Kennedy School's Ash Center and at Harvard University's Asia Center. He has had a long career in China and Asia-related fields. Through most of the 1970s, he was at the Hudson Institute, uh, back when it was under its founder, Herman Kahn, uh, who was a fascinating man. Uh, he was with Bankers Trust for many years, first in New York running a, a country risk team, and then from the mid-80s until about 1998, heading Asia Research for Bankers Trust. He then went over to Nomura in Hong Kong in the late 90s before returning to the U.S. to head up the RAND Corporation's Center for Asia-Pacific Policy. Bill is the author of China's Crisis of Success 2018 and of several other titles, but one that really stands out was he wrote what was one of the first major books to look at the consequences of reform and opening all the way back in 1994 with the very prescient title, The Rise of China, How Economic Reform is Creating a New Superpower. Bill Overholt, welcome to Seneca. It's such an honor to finally have you on our program. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. You have a great program. Well, thank you, Bill. Um, did you know that you and I share a birthday as I was <laughs> doing a little bit of background? Oh. March 7th, an auspicious day. So, Bill, the quote that I read at the start of the show uh, was from a letter to the editor published by The Wire. Um, it was in response to, but not, you know, not critical of Katrina Northrup's piece, uh, which I think you also agreed was an excellent article. So what I loved about that note uh, that you wrote was that the actual story of how you got to know uh, Marjorie Yang. Uh, so... So that was like twenty some odd years ago in Hong Kong. It's it's very unexpected. Uh, it's very personal. I'd love for you to tell uh, that story to our our listeners and and tell us about her commitment to corporate social responsibility and some of the programs that Esquel has undertaken that you're you're aware of. Well, I first met Margie in a series of standard uh, business sort of meetings, but one day I got a an invitation from what were probably two of the three leading ladies of Hong Kong, Lydia Dunn and Marjorie Young, uh, to go to a ballroom dance. And I didn't know why, but it sounded like fun, so I went. And it was a gala affair. And somehow afterwards, I found myself at a dancing lesson with uh, Margie Young. And uh, they were teaching us how to waltz, and I had done uh, basic dances back in cotillion uh, in, uh, when I was 12 years old, so I thought I knew how to do one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Uh, it pretty quickly became clear that trudging around wasn't what either the instructor or Margie had in mind. <laughs> so I then found myself taking uh, two double lessons that, that, a week. That, that meant an hour and a half twice a week, trying to become a, a decent dancer friend of Margie. And I, I never got to the point where I felt I belonged on the f floor with Margie, but uh, she was an international champion. She'd she'd fly off to Hawaii with some other partner and, and win a championship. But for some reason, she kept inviting me, uh, and uh, we were we were fairly regular dance partners. <laughs> and, and I imagine you must have improved a bit under her tutelage. 
That led to Margie and her sister uh, inviting me at one point to visit the operation of their company, Esquel, up in Turfan in Xinjiang. It was a place I'd, I'd visited briefly before. Uh, I knew something about the difficult conditions of the, the Uyghurs uh, and the fact that the Han Chinese people were getting most of the benefits of this extraordinary economic takeoff that was going on. And I'd been exposed to the gentle way at that time in which the Uyghurs were asserting their Turkish rather than Han Chinese uh, background. Uh, they'd take me to an elementary school where the kids were all singing Turkish songs. Though uh, so I was amazed to go to the Esquel factory and find that they had the most sophisticated cotton machines in the world, made by Toyota machinery. Nobody else in the world could afford them. And they were run by uh, highly trained Uyghur women, uh, two of them standing in a, a little air-conditioned glass booth at the corner of a football-size factory with these giant spinning machines. And uh, Uyghur women were in other key positions, like all the quality control jobs. And, and it turned out also that Margie was helping the, the people, uh, the farmers, by giving them a, a little grant in return for a promise uh, by them that they would deliver their cotton to her and a promise by her that she would pay next year a bit higher than the cotton price for this year. Um, mm. If you're a subsistence farmer with a volatile commodity like cotton, that's, that's a life and death benefit. That was, that was the business and analytical part. And then afterwards, after all the meetings and factory tours, the Uyghur community invited Margie and her sister and me and a few others to one of their houses and had this gala celebration of their success and of what Margie was doing for the Uyghur people. And they tried to teach us all how to do Uyghur dances. And uh, <laughs> Margie, of course, picked it up right away, even though you, you had these intricate hand and finger movements. Uh, I had to do my thing flailing my arms around kind of foolishly. Uh, but the point was that there was this total harmony uh, because Margie was a great benefactor of these Uyghur people. There was one subsequent chapter that didn't involve Margie directly. Uh, years later, I was president of something called the Fung Global Institute in Hong Kong, and a big German company approached us. They had been involved in cleaning up Germany's horrible pollution of its waterways. Uh, 
in the generation after World War II, and they thought, oh, maybe we could do something for China very profitably. And so they were looking at cleaning up uh, all the waterways around the city of Foshan, which is north of Hong Kong. And so I found myself visiting the most sophisticated water treatment facility just outside Foshan, uh, which happened to be run by Esquel. And so I went there and expected this rippling pond that one usually sees outside U.S. cities to clean up water. Instead, there was this city block size facility, four stories tall, that had 15 different stages of water cleanup. And they first cleaned up the local water so they could make bright colored shirts. And then that, that made the water horribly polluted. Right. Uh, after you put dyes in the water, smells like an outhouse. So there were these 15 stages of cleanup and at the other end, you could drink the water. And I drank some. Wow. And so it's enormously impressive, enormously expensive effort to do what was right, for not just for making the shirts, but for the local community. And so at opposite ends of China, I was just so impressed that Esquel was doing things that nobody else was doing. Hmm. Uh, let me note quickly for the record that uh, your observations of the colorful dress and mentions of dancing in connection with Uyghurs, both of which appear in your letter and in, in your account just now, do not represent an endorsement on part of this comp of certain uh, persistent stereotypes of China's Shaoshu Minzu represented uh, with regrettable frequency in PRC media. But anyway, it, it struck me, Bill, that uh, reading that Wire article, you know, many of the individuals interviewed uh, from your colleague at Harvard, Bill Kirby, uh, to my colleague and fellow podcast host at the Seneca Network, Chris Marquis at Cornell, uh, to, you know, cotton supply chain and labor experts like Terry Townsend, uh, that, that there is really quite uniform praise for their labor practices and the way that they have worked to keep their supply chain very clean in both the, the sense of, you know, not using forced labor and and clean in, in you know in the sense of being green and, and environmentally conscientious. Uh, to me, I, it's 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 terribly sad when we see companies like this being caught in the crossfire. Uh, they are, I think, you know, the embodiment in many ways of of the hopes that many of us had for what engagement was supposed to look like, uh, in that they would they would create wealth, that they would spread relatively enlightened business practices, that. They would, meanwhile, keep the shirts from Brooks Brothers relatively affordable for the American consumer. Uh, they are not alone either. I think that it's probably fair to say that a lot of companies that are operating in China and often come under legitimate criticism, though, on, on balance, they are improving the standards of, again, in, in large part because of oversight by consumers and by NGOs at home. But companies like, you know, like Nike or Apple, uh, other major consumer brands, they are doing a lot to raise standards when it comes to labor practices. I think that's, that's fair to say. W would you broadly agree with that? I mean, do you think that this is one of the potential casualties of decoupling is that, you know, we, we will lose that, uh, that ability, I think, as, as manufacturing leaves China to bring to bear those those forces uh, to 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 see improvement. I would very much agree 
about how uh, American and Western companies, but particularly American companies, have upgraded standards in China. Uh, basic things like not exposing workers to dangerous pollution, uh, having reasonable hours and, and working conditions. These were initiated by Western companies, often under some pressure, but standards became institutionalized and they spread. First to other foreign companies, the, the South Koreans and the Taiwanese were particularly ruthless in the way they, they treated labor and, and, and they got shamed. Yeah. And, and then the, the local companies also found themselves under pressure. And so if you go to Shenzhen or Foshan today, you find very acceptable working conditions. And these uh, confident, happy women assembling computers and, and doing other things and uh, earning a multiple of what they would have earned if they'd stayed in the villages. Uh, mm -hmm. These women often travel 500 to 1,000 miles away from their villages and their families to get these jobs, and particularly the ones with the foreign factories. There are always problems that come up, and companies like Nike and Apple have had to take uh, strong measures, sometimes under pressure, to upgrade aspects of their operations. But they've done that. And the upgrades, the improvements are most noteworthy in the relatively distant areas, like Xinjiang. So mm -hmm. it remains uh, important for NGOs and government to keep the pressure. You're not allowed to use slave labor and you have to actively check. You're not allowed to say, well, that's our subsidiary. We didn't know anything about it. But the kind of blanket sanctions that have been done, where you're guilty until proven innocent, and, and that's, that's been the rule. And it's not just been the government rule. It's, uh, the media have uh, basically denounced any use of Xinjiang cotton. The first thing that does is to ensure that every poverty-stricken farmer in Xinjiang will suffer. Right. And the second thing it does is, is ensnare the companies with the absolute best practices. So we could spend a couple hours on when sanctions work and, and, and why they usually don't work. But they have to be, they have to be carefully targeted, and, and they aren't. In your, in your piece, at the very end of your piece, you, you say... When a fisherman casts a big net to catch tuna, it occasionally ensnares a porpoise. Uh, that's inevitable. Catching a porpoise doesn't make the fisherman bad. He is judged on whether he frees the porpoise. I mean, this this one porpoise, the one with the, the mad ballroom dancing skills, uh, does now seem to be off the hook. Uh, as I said, you know, Esquil has, has, has managed to be thrown back, but um, it's been freed from the net. Uh, but the other dolphins are being asked to prove that they're not tuna uh, or that their diets are entirely free of tuna. Couldn't one make the case that maybe 
fishing with big nets to begin with is the problem. I mean, rather than say pole and line fishing, which is now being advocated for 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 catching of of tuna in deep sea. I mean, and I, I, I think of parallels to the DOJ's so-called China initiative, again, where, you know, it's meant to catch these non-traditional collectors of, 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 of intelligence or whatever, but it's also this sort of big net approach that's ended up catching a lot of dolphins and, and very few, it would seem, if any, actual tuna. The trauma, I think, also of being caught in one of these nets is, is absolutely enormous. I mean, and it, so they're freed, but they've, they've endured an awful lot of suffering, as I'm sure the former University of Tennessee professor, uh, Huan Ming could probably tell us. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And we could spend a lot of time talking about what sanctions do and, and don't work, but these clearly are, are problematic in, in so many ways. This, this idea that you have to prove this negative, you know, prove that your, supply chains are clean and especially problematic when we're seeing what what happened just yesterday the wall street journal reported that uh there was a chinese partner organization of of the uh, ngo verite verite does labor auditing and while it's a relatively small player it has worked with some of these really big multinationals in doing auditing on labor practices in their supply chains. Uh, the journal article makes clear that the shuttering of Verite's Chinese partners was all about China's resistance to uh, forced labor allegations. This hardly seems like it would allay suspicions of that, but it also makes it really, really difficult, I think, for what was already quite difficult. You know, It now seems like if your supply chain touches Xinjiang at all, there's an assumption that it's tainted with with forced labor, uh, or if you've ever employed, whether it's in the Pearl River Delta or the Yangtze Delta or anywhere else in China, whether you've, if you've employed ethnically Uyghur people, they're assumed to be there, you know, if they're on, on some kind of labor transfer program, it's assumed that they were coerced. What, what is a better approach to the, to this? Because look, we, we all, I think, I hope we all recognize that we do not want our, our supply chains to involve forced labor from Xinjiang. Uh, there is now this Xinjiang Forced Labor Prevention Act, which is before the Senate, and there's a House version as well, and they're looking likely to pass, but it seems like they haven't really made any improvements on, on the situation. Yeah, the, the sanctions that work are highly targeted. Mm-hmm. Now, take the case of Huawei. Uh, now, Huawei was about to take over 5G for the whole world because it has access to all the markets of the world, whereas the Western competitors, uh, Nokia and Ericsson, are shut out of the China market, which happens to be the biggest and fastest growing. And so Huawei could uh, have R&D budgets that were substantially larger than Ericsson's and Nokia's combined. Huawei was a very good company, but its success was because of a totally unfair China policy, which was going to totally destroy the Western competitors. They were simply going to be put out of business, out of out mm. of the 5G business. So you say, okay, we're not going to allow Huawei to have the the semiconductors it needs to build its equipment. That works. It's, a, it's an absolutely legitimate target, and it works. Now, what doesn't work? Blanket 
sanctions intended to change policies that local governments think are core policies. And U.S. sanctions on Cuba are the the ultimate uh, example of that. You go for more than half a century, and, and the sanctions have the effect of strengthening the dictatorial government that you don't like, because they can blame the problems on foreigners. Right. If they were to say in Xinjiang, forced labor is absolutely unacceptable, and if we find you actually employing forced labor, you'll be sanctioned. And then let let the NGOs help enforce that. The U.S. government has extraordinary ability to find out what's actually going on. When you look mm. at the allegations against Esquel, they got right down to fewer than a handful of workers where they said Esquel had interviewed people who were part of a group suggested by the the Chinese government. And it came down to three workers, two of whom were Uyghurs, one of whom was Kazakh. And the conditions under which they had been hired, and they're, they're paid good market wages, not slave labor wages. Everybody agrees on that. So Esquel was basically put on sanctions because of a disputed minor technicality. And we don't have to do that. We can say if Nike has a big operation in Xinjiang employing hundreds of slave labor workers, we're going to nail it. And we can find out. But this black and white mass approach of you're guilty until proven innocent. And it's not, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just the U.S. government. It's, it's our, our media. All these articles denouncing companies who use Xinjiang cotton. So we should put every farmer in Xinjiang out of business. It's horrible. But uh, at the same time, you know, do you see it at all problematic that Esquel was working with the, the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, uh, better known to us in the China-watching world as, as the Bingtuan? I mean, Esquel, it does have a relationship with the Bingtuan. That seems to be part of the, the original basis of the entity listing. Uh, and as Jim Millward from Georgetown points out in, in Katrina Northrop's piece, uh, there is a carceral component to the Bingtuan. I, I have no reason to doubt that it has had a hand or continues to have a hand in the operation or at least in the construction of the camps. The problem in dealing with China is there is an evolution. In, right. in the early days and even a little later on, if you were a foreign company wanting to do business in China... The dealing through the PLA was basically the only efficient way to get going. If you wanted logistics that worked, uh, if you wanted proper infrastructure, if you wanted good communications, the PLA was it. And oh, let me take an example of Seagram's. Mm-hmm. 
Every substantial bar in China has Seagram's liquor behind the counter. I don't know how it is now, but as long as I lived in Hong Kong, the record showed that Seagram's had never exported a single bottle of anything mm. to China. It had a deal with the PLA so that bottles sort of showed up on in back of every bar in China. And if they'd gone through the regular system, there would have been 15 chits that they would have had to get signed, and they wouldn't be signed until you paid bribes, and it would take so long that nothing would ever happen. You'd never get permission to do anything. Uh, and then if you got the bottles into China, you couldn't get them distributed anywhere without the PLA. And that was, that was a situation that virtually every company faced. And that was a situation that a company like Esquel faced in, in the early days, trying to get large-scale farm operations. And then things evolve, and, and you constantly upgrade. You make sure that all your workers are treated the best. You, you form direct relationships, as Esquel did, where you're saying, okay, I, I'm not only going to pay you market prices this year and not squeeze you, that every year I'm going to promise you that next year I will give you a higher price. <laughs> and so, yes, everybody's, everybody has a history that can be criticized. And the, the question is, are you doing anything today that harms workers? Are you doing better than 100% of your competitors in the way you treat workers, train workers, give prestige to your workers. That's the question to ask, not the history. Right. Every American company has some kind of a history, but on almost all cases, that history is one that improved situations in China. So let's get back to to Marjorie, uh, and you know your association, your friendship with her, really started to blossom in the late nineteen nineties. This was at a time when you know I think the the norm was still very much the sweatshop narrative. I mean, there was still quite a bit of of that kind of Taiwan and Hong Kong Laoban exploitation of of factories in Dongguan and, and things like that. And it sounds like Marjorie was very much ahead of her time with Esquel. And I'm sure you this is something you, that you talked about. Can you kind of uh, recall for our listeners what her thinking was, how she talked to you about their vision for operating in China more responsibly? Well, there was just a constant emphasis on ethical behavior, on treating people well, on treating the environment well. It just pervaded everything. And after, after I wrote that uh, piece for The Wire China, a Harvard uh, Business School professor, uh, James Sabanius, got in touch with me and sent me two of his case studies of how Esquel worked on this system of, of promising the cotton farmers a, a better price next year than they get this year. But then he also forwarded me a, a business school case study, which unfortunately is paywalled, from years earlier, 
by Warren McFarlane and, and several colleagues on specifically the question of can you run a, a business to the highest ethical standards? Uh, so Warren McFarlane and two of his Harvard Business School colleagues wrote about the efforts of Esquel to just set a higher standard than everybody else. And it's hard and it's unusual, and that's why it was worth a Harvard Business School case study that, that students are told to read. Hmm. So do we know anything about how Esquel got itself off of the entity list? I mean, Katrina Northrup's piece made it clear that it's a whole lot easier to find yourself on the list than to get yourself removed from it. You have to actually appeal to an interagency committee that's chaired by uh, the Department of Commerce, and the vote to remove you has to be unanimous to take you off. Uh, so he, her piece made it clear that um, they've been quite proactive in trying to get off the list. They hired uh, K-Street firms, some very high-powered ones, uh, what what do you know about their efforts to get themselves removed and, and how this transpired? I don't know the details of those efforts. Mm. I think that one entity was taken off the list, but I, my understanding is that, that, that Esquel, as a as an umbrella organization, still still has problems and mm. uh, very worried about about what this is going to do to the company. So, yeah, they hired lawyers. They, uh, they, they, have, uh, they have a reputation. Uh, they're known to all the, the big American companies. And everybody has the same impression of them. Right. There's nobody out there saying, oh, this is a terrible company. It, it, it's kind of company that would, would hire slave labor. So that creates an environment in which it's, it's not just the legal process. What Washington is finding is that if you sanction a squill, you discredit the whole process of trying to use sanctions to make, make an appropriate eth ethical statement about Xinjiang. It's one aspect that tends to discredit the whole process. The other, the other is these blanket efforts that tend to harm every poor farmer in Xinjiang. Right. There's a, call it a political angle as well as a legal angle. So, so Bill, I would be remiss, and uh, I think this would be a squandered opportunity, if I didn't ask you to talk about some of the other bigger picture issues in the bilateral relationship that you've been really passionate about. Uh, one piece that you've published recently was an op-ed for The Hill, uh, and it criticized the lack of, of China expertise in the Biden administration's current foreign policy team as it's shaping up. I mean, the Biden foreign policy team has been criticized an awful lot over another foreign policy issue, the course, Afghanistan. But um, this particular piece from, I guess, a, a few a months months back, I suppose, it reminded me of a Bloomberg piece from um, back during the Obama administration that said pretty much the same thing about the Obama team reporting that uh, the Chinese side was really lamenting the fact that it didn't have a go-to guy uh, who really had the president's ear. And this was especially the case after Jeff Bader left, uh, left government. Uh, Blinken's expertise is is the Middle East and Europe. Uh, mm -hmm. 
Sullivan's expertise is very similar. The, a little bit of Burma thrown in. Secretary of Defense Austin, for whom I have the greatest respect, experiences the Iraq War and then being the general overseeing our Middle East operations. Uh, none of them have any experience of China. And, and that's a problem because when a crisis occurs, the communications around the decision pretty much stay at the top. Even assistant secretaries just get closed out. I have a particular worry about this pattern of saying everything about India is good and everything about China is bad because of what happened in the early Obama administration. You remember that they worked up an absolute fervor about China doing business and oil business in Sudan. Sure. This was terrible. It was immoral. It showed that China had no standards. And, and of course, at the same time, in, India was the world's biggest democracy. Everything said about India was wonderful. Never mentioned was the fact that the oil company in Sudan is a Sino-Indian joint venture. And this makes for bad policy. It makes us look like idiots in the face of the world mm -hmm. because the, the experts on these things in the world know this. And it was the same, we, we made this terrible fuss about Chinese relationships with the oil business in Iran. And meanwhile, India is this wonderful supporter of our foreign policy. Well, India's dealings and laws toward Iran were essentially identical to those of China. And if you're German, you think these Americans are some combination of hypocritical and ignorant. If you're Chinese, your reaction is, these Americans don't care about the ethics of these situations. They're just trying to keep China down. And, right. and so it has horrible consequences for our foreign policy and not just in the direct relations with China. So we don't need to reinforce this layer after layer with state and defense and national security advisor and the ambassador. People mention that uh, there are very good China experts further down. The problem with that is in a crunch, it doesn't matter. When Secretary Blinken goes off on the Chinese for getting countries indebted and seizing their assets, something that's never happened, never once in the whole world. Right. It just creates unnecessary hostility. The other thing that happens when they're dealing with Taiwan, and, and Taiwan could be the hinge issue of modern history. Mm -hmm. It can be the issue that leads us to lose Los Angeles and Washington and the Chinese to lose Shanghai and Beijing. And this is, this is a really big deal. What looks easy to somebody who doesn't know China is, oh, let's just upgrade our, our official exchanges of cabinet members. Let's, let's just refer to Taiwan as, as a strategic partner in our military documents. Let's just send a, an American military aircraft 
then we show how much we appreciate Taiwan, but we don't do any of the hard stuff of upgrading their military, teaching them how you fight in an actual conflict, things that cost money and might cost blood. But those things that seem easy are the things we promised not to do in 1972. And if we repudiate them, we can put Xi Jinping in a position where he has to take decisive military action in order to keep his job. Mm. So this is dangerous. There needs to be somebody close to the president and the Bush administration, the W. Bush administration, which I didn't like domestically and I didn't like for most of its foreign policy. Sure. But you had Hank Paulson in the cabinet. That's right. You had Sandy Rand as the ambassador. And when things were going off the rails, they had the ear of the president. And, and by the way, they had Dennis Wilder in the National Security right. Council. And so in the W administration, you have one big success, and that's relationships with China and Taiwan. We need, we need to learn that lesson. It's a lesson that Obama didn't understand. It's a lesson that Trump certainly didn't understand. And it's a lesson that, that Biden hasn't figured out. That's right. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more about the W administration. Uh, that was their one big thing. I mean, a, a lot of it was just sort of because we were so very distracted after September 11th. I mean, it didn't start off very auspiciously. I mean, just months into into his his administration, we had the EP3 incident, uh, you know, in, in, in April of 2001. But yeah, after September 11th, things changed quite a bit. And it's really, yeah, you'd be hard put to find any anything that really roiled the waters significantly in U.S.-China relations across the whole W administration, all the way up, really up until March of, of 08 with, with, uh, with Tibet. In any case, um, the, this whole framing of, of the relationship right now you know, at, in strategic competition at the same time that we see uh, coming into just such common usage. And this didn't start, of course, with the Biden administration, but the Indo-Pacific and the revival of the Quad, it really does uh, send very strong signals about India and about China. Um, this this Indo-Pacific framing is, is it's quite deliberate. And I think it's kind of a, a, a shibboleth that you can sort of hear how somebody um, comes down and whether they use Asia Pacific or Indo Pacific in in their ordinary language. In any case, you also contributed this article to a journal called Prism, which is a journal that's put out by the National Defense University. Uh, that came out just this year, only a few months ago. But my sense was that the piece was written before the pandemic. I mean, perhaps in 2019. I think the last footnote in there that refers to any article was one from 2019. So I'm, I'm guessing you you wrote this before this very consequential last year and a half. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. I, I had a, a series of uh, uh, military briefings over a period of time that led to me, uh, very controversial by the way, uh, that led to me being invited to write that article for PRISM. And because of COVID, the process of production and, and publication took considerably longer than, than usual. What would you have written differently now if we were to revisit it in, in, in light of 
Well, really in light of two things, in light of, of our kind of ignominious departure uh, from Afghanistan and also in, in light of COVID. I mean, I think that we'll probably look back, we'll end up looking back uh, years from now at the, the years 2020 and 2021 and this pair of events in kind of the same way that we'll, we'll, we'll look back at, you know, 2008, 2009 at, you know, China's Olympic moment and then the financial crisis as this sort of pair of things that marked a, an inflection point in, you know, the fate of great powers. I can't think of a word in that article that I would change. Oh, okay. Uh, the emphasis in that article is that we have, yes, we have serious conflicts uh, with China, but we have potentially planet-saving mutual interests and we have common interests in things like North Korea, something I think this administration has forgotten almost more than any in the past half century. Traditionally, presidents come to office with lots of anti-China rhetoric, and then one of the things they discover, uh, it's kind of a wake-up call, is how cooperative the Chinese have been on North Korea and and how much our interests overlap. Uh, and it leads to a whole different perspective. We need that now even more. Another emphasis is that in the post-war era, post-World War II era, who wins and who loses is an economic game. Mm -hmm. We beat the Soviets by winning economically. They went bankrupt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When I was starting my career, North Korea was superior in every way to South Korea. And the South got in a general who decided to focus on economy above all. And now the South Korean economy is 50 times the size of the North. And Japan and Germany became big powers again by really focusing on economics. And Indonesia went from being the, the sick man of Asia to being the undisputed leader of Southeast Asia. When they shifted from a, a military ideological presidency before 1966 to one focused on the economy afterwards, and China. China became a big power because of its economy before the military buildup started. You read the title of my book, The Rise of China, from 93 how economic reform is creating a new superpower. That's uh, right. The U.S. has been, having won the Cold War with an economic strategy, has become almost entirely focused on the military, sees everything in military terms. And That's China, right. with Belt and Road, has basically taken what we call the, the Bretton Woods system, what won the Cold War for us. A World Bank financing infrastructure, IMF and WTO setting common standards. Well, that's what BRI is, but with Chinese characteristics. And it's a winning, it's a winning game. So I use the example in Africa of, we send a special forces team to each country and maintain an offshore naval presence and China's in there building roads and railroads. And, uh, 
you know, they win every time. In fact, the president of Nigeria just published an article saying that. You never know it from reading our newspapers or, or listening to speeches in Washington. But the economics is the game, and we're better at it. We're the originators of the game, but what we're doing is pretty feeble compared to yeah. what we used to do and, and compare it with what China is doing. Do you think that in this administration, there's at least some increased cognizance of the importance of the, of the economic component? I mean, at, at G7, President Biden uh, announced at least, I don't know how, how much has been done toward it, but this so-called B3W, Build Back Better World. And it was framed very much as a, a counter to the Belt and Road Initiative. This is the thing that you hear all the time if you're talking to people in the global south. It's like, you know, what is your counter? Uh, if you don't want us to, to take Chinese investment and, uh, you know, uh, Chinese help in infrastructure construction, what's your counter? Does the United States and its Western allies finally have something that you think is remotely comparable? We're finally doing something, yes. And, that, and, and that's mm -hmm. very good. But it's still a second-rate reaction to what the Chinese are doing. It's not the core of our strategy in the world. It was the core of our strategy in the world through the Cold War. And we didn't articulate that very well. But Truman focused on the economic rebuilding, the Marshall Plan. Yeah, the military essentially protected an economic strategy. And, and Eisenhower, kept the military budget under control uh, despite tremendous uh, contrary pressures because he saw the importance of the economic strategy. So yes, the improvements Biden have made are tremendously valuable. But if you are the president of Nigeria or Zambia, what you see is China building roads, building railroads, building ports, constructing systems, and it's constructing them in a networked, a globally networked way. There's an, an integrated, it, it's the top priority right. and it's an integrated vision. For us, it's a secondary reactive thing and it's not part of an integrated vision. Indeed. This is the U.S. peacetime pattern. Budgets are driven by interest groups. And the Pentagon has the biggest interest groups in world history backing its budget. And AID, the State Department, and those things have no interest groups. So we have a problem, and it's a problem both of strategic thinking and of our political process for setting priorities. Right. We're back to Eisenhower's warning. And we're back to the issue you raised earlier about foreign policy leadership. Where, where is the Kissinger, the Scowcroft, the, the Brzezinski, the, the Jim Baker, who, who has got a global vision, uh, who's got an integrated vision? Even, even if there are aspects of the vision that one wants to criticize, 
they had global vision. They were, and they were focused on the big issue, which at the time was, was the Soviet Union. Well, I wonder whether this most recent crisis may not provoke a big rethink in American grand strategy. I wonder, I mean, that's the most optimistic possible gloss to put on, on our debacle, uh, that maybe we will maybe come to some appreciation for how uh, viewing everything through this national security lens. I mean, especially since part of the rationale for drawdown there is to kind of fulfill finally this pivot to Asia idea, which was intended, you know, to be more than just a security pivot. It was intended to be an economic pivot uh, when it was originally, you know, sort of cast in, you know, by by Danny Russell and Kurt Campbell back in in the early 2010s. I think strategically, both both Trump and Biden had the right idea that if you fought for 20 years against a group of primitive, primitively armed tribes, and you're either stalemated or losing, and basically we're doing the same thing in Iraq and we're doing the same thing in Syria, and your main interest in the world is elsewhere, you got to cut your losses. And you know, when I sell a stock that I bet on is going down, it's very painful. And when you pull out of a, a military mistake, when you re- retreat is the most difficult maneuver for any military man or woman. And this was tactically completely incompetent. Strategically, it's the right thing to do. And we as a nation will benefit from it, but tactically you just didn't have the kind of leadership. You don't have anybody who can even articulate to themselves the real issue. The real issue in Afghanistan is the same one we had in Vietnam. These people thought they just had to get rid of the foreigner. It was nationalism in Vietnam, it was nationalism in, in Afghanistan. And when very primitive groups fight successfully for 20 years against the the biggest power in world history, uh, it means they have the support of most of the people. We have the support of the people like us. And I, I couldn't identify more with those educated men and those recently liberated women. Uh, It's heartbreaking. But we were fighting the people of Afghanistan, just as, unfortunately, when I was a kid, we were fighting the people of Vietnam. The other thing, we didn't understand tribalism. Hmm. We were backing the wrong tribe and the tribe that didn't have the support of Pakistan. In a previous incarnation, I had to read... uh, I had, I had to review a strategy paper by a, a mid-ranking military officer, and he said, well, we're, to create the National Army, and we have a few sessions in the rather short training course for a- Afghan officers. We educate them that you have to fight for the country, not for the tribe. And I wrote in the margin, if your officers believe that that will achieve that goal, we're headed for catastrophe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our foreign policy leaders just don't get that. 
uh, we're fighting we're you, fighting nationalism, we're there. fighting tribalism. And unfortunately, I think that means we're going to fail to learn the lessons once again. Same problem we have backing the, the good guys in Myanmar. Aung San Suu Kyi is a tribal leader. She only cares about the lowland Buddhist Burmans. She never wanted to be president of the whole country. Uh, and, and, and so it would never work. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're bound to be disappointed. So hopefully at some point somebody will articulate what the real issues are in these places. But it's certainly not happening now. Now, find the op-ed or the State Department speech that articulates those real issues. Instead, what I see right now, uh, the New Yorker just published uh, Benjamin Wallace Wells just did an, an interview with uh, this former Trump administration uh, a Pentagon guy named uh, Eldridge Colby. I'm sure you, you're familiar with him who is now trying to rally, you know, conservatives for the next war, which he believes is, of course, with China and, uh, you know, over over Taiwan, as, as we, we've warned about. And it's, it's really disturbing. He says, look, if you're in the Pentagon and you have a job that's not about China, he says, you know, it's time to get yourself another job. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty terrifying, terrifying piece. It, it is, and it, it, it typifies the total focus on the military. And right. it, it typifies the totally blind approach to China. Everything China's doing is aggressive, and everything we're doing is is defensive and In defensive and freedom, and, right, right. And, right. you know, if you read Jessica Matthews in the New York Review of Books, you know, this is a centrist, solid American Democrat figure. It says, well, you know, each of these big overflights, Chinese aggressions over Taiwan, responds to a particular Biden administration diplomatic provocation of upgrading the degree of official relationship. And there's a wonderful article in the Back to the Wire China about how Pompeo inspired China's wolf warriors. And once mm. you say it, all of a sudden it's obvious. Um, Pompeo was totally provocative uh, on things like like the debt trap and, and the port in Sri Lanka. He just lied. Right. And that's what the wolf warriors do. And the Chinese thought, well, this is, this is the way the big power does it. And this is something we have to respond to. There's no interactive perspective. There's just this Manichaean, we're good, they're evil. And when I say that, it doesn't mean that I believe the inverse or anything, right? <laughs> approve of any of Xi Jinping's domestic policies, his his aggressive foreign policies, his wolf warriors, what he's done in Hong Kong and, and Xinjiang, and uh, the aggressive diplomacy elsewhere. I I think what he's doing is wrong. I think we have to oppose it. I think much of what he's doing is bad for China. But 
we need to be the dispassionate analysts, the good managers who see the complexities and don't just become tribal, we're good, they're evil, uh, because that's, that's what makes it impossible to deal with the positive things about the economy, about the environment, about climate change, about North Korea, that moderate and balance a, a very difficult relationship. Ah. <laughs> I almost am, I'm reluctant to, to want to wind down on that, on that note, but uh, uh, we, we, I've kept you very long. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to join me to talk about Esquel and, and about some of your recent work and uh, your musings on, on U.S.-China relations. Uh, Bill, let's move on to recommendations. First, I want to remind everyone. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. If you like what we're doing with Seneca or with any of the great shows in the Seneca network, like China Corner Office, which we've talked about, or, or New Voices, great new episode of New Voices you should check out uh, with Lotus Ryan uh, talking about uh Chinese tech policy. Uh, you, you you can learn Chinese, some really good, other good shows in our network. The very best thing you can do to show your support is to subscribe to SubChina Access, our daily email newsletter. It is a fantastic resource and the easiest way to really stay clued into what's actually happening in China today. All right. So now on to recommendations. Bill, what you got for us? Well, uh, first I'll, I'll make myself look syrupy by saying I'd recommend people get the sub the sub China publications and and podcasts because you're you're providing points of view that are deeply rooted in reality and and complexity. Uh, I would also recommend the Wire China, which we've we've talked about. Yeah, David Barbosa provides regularly some of the most interesting, in-depth, balanced articles about China. But every day, he says, here are all the articles you ought to be reading about China. And that's just invaluable. And and finally, I'd, I'd focus in on one thing, and, and that's an article in the Atlantic magazine by by Deborah Brodigam of, of SAIS and and Meg Rethmeyer. That's a great piece. Of Harvard. Yeah. Look at, looking at the controversy over this Sri Lankan port of Hamantota, which the story became, uh, and Vice President Pence and, and Secretary Pompeo pushed this, and their, uh, their assistant secretary pushed it every week that China was deliberately getting uh, countries into over-indebted situations, then seizing the collateral. And the New York Times had a major article pushing that story, which had some of the same effects as, as their article 
years earlier about how there were all these these uh, dangerous weapons of mass destruction in in Iraq. They go through Professor Ruthmeyer and Professor Brodingham go through in detail what actually happened and sh show how this wave of understanding that affected Americans' images of what China was doing in the world in the most fundamental way. And by the way, Secretary Blinken picked this up from Secretary Pompeo. It was just totally wrong. And elsewhere, they looked at they looked at a thousand cases of of more than a thousand cases of Chinese loans in Africa and elsewhere, and and found that China's never done this kind of thing even once. So it typifies the the kind of manic McCarthyite attitude that has been created in many areas, and they puncture it. And we can't do anything more useful than puncturing that these days. Yeah, there, there have been a slew of really good papers and articles that all set out to sort of debunk the myth of that, that trap diplomacy. One that I would point people to uh, was from Chatham House as well. Uh, the authors were Lee Jones and Shahar Hameri. Uh, check out that piece as well. The one by Meg Rithmeyer and Deborah Brodigan really stands out. That one was fantastic. That one is called The Chinese Debt Trap is a Myth. And I highly I endorse that. I second that recommendation heartily. Thanks, Bill. Th those are fantastic. And thank you for, for uh, your kind words about us. Uh, let me just say something about The Wire China, too. I have the privilege, I think, of reading their cover story every week, uh, you know, as a an audio recording. Uh, and I find that they, they've engaged some of the finest writers out there writing on China. Not all of them are based in China. There are some, you know, who specialize in writing on technology and do such a good job. Tim Deschant, for example, just fantastic, uh, really deep dive stuff into uh, technology-related things. He did one on uh, lithium and lithium-ion batteries uh, and, and how important that is. He did one on... Uh, EUV lithography and how important that is. Uh, it's how it's dominated by the one Dutch company ca called ASML. He's a, a fantastic writer. But uh, the, the article on nationalism in China uh, by Alec Ash uh, in, I think it was about two weeks ago, that one was a real standout. Indeed. It was a really fantastic, fantastic piece. Yeah, uh, so yeah, kudos to, to David Barboza, who I think is just has just he they work so hard they have a very very small team and they put out you know so much stuff so we see them very much as comrades in in, in the struggle <laughs> uh, great well let me do my recommendation it's for a novel uh, it's called the lions of al rasan it's by the author guy Gabriel K who is a uh, very well-known uh, fantasy and historical fiction writer. I'm really his, his stuff straddles historical fiction. That's his stick. He he takes what's obviously an historical setting from you know a familiar history, and he he changes some things, place names and names of important personages, but they're still mostly recognizable if you know the history. And he gives himself, I think, in in so doing, some license for the the, the departures that he takes from the strict you know actual history. Um, I think that I may have plugged one of his novels on this show before uh, that was actually set in a fictionalized 8th century Tang Dynasty China, especially in the Western sort of marches of, of, of Tang China, uh, in the aftermath of what's clearly the Battle of Talas, uh, where, you know, 
Arab and, and Tang Chinese forces clashed in a, a, a fairly small skirmish. He makes more of it. Uh, and uh, through the, the eve of and all through the Anlushan Rebellion, uh, 755, and, you know, the fall of Tang Minghuang. And so it's got, it's peopled with all the characters you expect, Anlushan himself and, you know, Yang Guifei and Yang Guozhong, uh, and, you know, the, the Tang Minghuang himself. And, of course, you know, the poet Li Bai. Uh, they all have their names slightly changed, but it's, it's, it's fairly faithful. Um, I liked that one, and it's, it was very good. But this book, The Lines of Al-Rasan, it's set in, in the 11th century on the Iberian Peninsula, and it's clearly, it's, you know, the time of El Cid, right? King Ferdinand has died. He's left his kingdom divided among these three, you know, feckless sons. Not all entirely feckless, but it's, it's full of uh, historical characters like El Cid himself and uh, somebody who's clearly based on, on, on Rebecca of York, you know, this Jewish uh, physician. But he, he does something really interesting with the three major religions. So uh, the, the Christians become the Jadites. The Muslims become Asherites, worshiping Ashar, and the, the, the Jews become the Kindath. And he does this cool thing where the Jadites worship the sun, the Asherites worship the stars, and the, the just to remind you that this is a different world, the, the Kindath, the Jews, worship the two moons. There are two moons in this world, but it's otherwise the Iberian Peninsula in geography and, and historical outlines. But it's, it's a fantastic story. And, and what he does better, I think, in this one is he, these, the characters are much more fleshed out. They're much more recognizable. I think that when he was writing in an unfamiliar historical setting, uh, he tended not to, you know, they're a little less fully dimensional uh so anyway really great great stuff uh i i think it's a uh, well-constructed story tons of intrigue and battles but uh, it has a, a lot of heart it has that gooey middle is a, a real kind of you know, a strong emotional component to it it's from the mid 90s it was recommended to me by my fantasy loving older brother who he thinks uh, who, who says that this is the best thing that guy, guy gabriel k has ever written and i i, I tend to agree so, yeah, check it out. It's called The Lions of Al-Rasan. Thanks, Bill, once again, for, for joining me. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm, I'm so glad I could finally have you on the program. Thank you. Looking forward to seeing you again. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And be sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.